Welcome to Navara Live. I'm Aaron Mustani. This evening, I have the immense pleasure, joy, privilege of being joined by Ash Sarka. Ash, how are you? I'm very well. Now that you've lifted that restraining order, Aaron, I can hang out with you all the time. <laughs> well, you know what? I do uh, I do try my best when it comes to covering my back legally, as you have to do on this show when you work with Michael Walker. You know the ins and outs of uh, Britain's uh, very, very, very Byzantine legal system. Enough of jokes. We've got a lot to cover on tonight's show. Very serious. We'll be looking at the latest developments in pay negotiations between nurses and the government. I'll also be trying to lay out everything you need to know about the Pentagon leaks. I'm sure you've heard about those, but let's drill into the details that matter. More evidence that a certain party leader with an expensive haircut is a bit of a hypocrite. Can you guess who that is? And some of the best bits of Joe Biden's Ireland tour. Were the gaffes really that bad? And before we get going, this show now has its own dedicated podcast feed on Spotify. We launched earlier this week, and we're happy to say... We've shot up the charts of the top UK news podcasts on Spotify. We're currently at number two. So if you haven't already, click the link in the YouTube description box below and follow the feed there. You can also leave a review of us and help us climb higher than Alistair Campbell's podcast. I kind of want to channel my inner Alistair Campbell and say it's time for regime change. Help us do that and like the podcasts, subscribe and give us a review. First story, members of the Royal College of Nursing have voted to reject the government's offer of a 5% pay rise. That's despite the union leadership actually recommending that their members accept it. It was a pretty narrow result, with 54% of the membership saying no to the offer. Speaking on Sky News, RCN General Secretary Pat Cullen explained what happened. Clearly our members have voted to reject the pay offer that's been put on the table. Um, and whilst um, a number of our members voted to accept, uh, we will listen now to the voice of our members and they've rejected the pay offer. Um, and uh, we're back now to negotiating with government for a better pay offer for our members. And what are your strike plans now? Well, we have issued today uh, notices for strike action for the duration of our mandate um, at the end of April, beginning of May. And then we will move to reballot our members for further um, period of strike action um, leading into the next six months. Now, the nurses will strike again for 48 hours from 8pm on the 30th of April until 8pm on 2nd of May. That means that on International Workers' Day, the nurses will be on the streets. The members will then be reballoted over further strike action. It's reported to be planning an even more aggressive campaign over the next six months, possibly to coincide with future doctors' strikes. A government spokesperson said this, It is hugely disappointing that the Royal College of Nursing membership has rejected the pay deal recommended by their leadership. Following constructive discussions, all parties agreed this was a fair and generous offer, which is demonstrated by Unison, representing the largest share of the NHS workforce, choosing to accept it. The fact that the Royal College of Nursing, the RCN, has announced an escalation in strike action with no derogations based on a vote from the minority of the work nursing workforce will be hugely concerning for patients. Hundreds of thousands of Agenda for Change staff continue to vote in ballots for other unions over the next two weeks, and we hope this generous offer secures their support. The government's offer involved a one-off bonus of between £1,600 and for the financial year 2022-23, but advice from Pat Cullen to accept the offer was met by a powerful grassroots vote-reject campaign. Cullen was asked what she thought about the result. How disappointing is it to you and your senior colleagues that you negotiated this deal and recommended it and now it's been rejected? Look, we've always said as a college and a ruling council that we would listen to our members. Our members have made that decision today. This offer was not enough for our members and it is now down to the government to listen to the voice of nursing and put a better offer on the table. They need to restore the nurses' pay and they need to make a better offer. But the one thing that they must not do is to take the current offer off the table. They need to leave that on the table and add to it. Meanwhile, NHS staff who are Unison members have accepted the government's offer. 74% of Unison's NHS members voted to accept the deal. That decision will affect 
112,000 people presently working in the NHS. Ash, this is a major moment in this struggle for fair pay in the NHS, isn't it? Because you've got the RCN union, Pat Cullen, been very vocal in opposition to the government. Members, the grassroots of working nurses in the NHS have defied even her. I mean, this is an absolutely historic turn of events, because if you just cast your mind back through the RCN's history, it has been traditionally a little bit small c conservative. These strikes which have been carried out by the RCN have been the first in the history of this professional association, in in the history of this union. Um, And so you've gone from that kind of context where traditionally the Royal College of Nurses was very, very reluctant to go on strike, where now you're at a point where the rank and file membership are rejecting pay deals which have been negotiated and recommended by the union leadership. So that's a really, really big deal. And I think that suggests um, two things. One is that I think that there is a much bigger space for grassroots organizing amongst trade unions, even when you don't have the leadership. We've often thought about the direction of trade unions being determined by the politics of whoever's at the top. Now, of course, that's true to a significant extent, but that's not the only thing that's at play here. Um, And the second thing is that I wonder if this might be a tactic which is then borrowed and replicated across other unions where perhaps you've got a leadership which is a bit to the right of the membership and now there's an understanding that can that there could be a lot more organizing within it in order to you know force the leadership back to the table and get a better pay deal now when it comes to the NHS the nurses are not alone in going on strike. You've seen ambulance workers walk out. You've obviously seen what's going on with the junior doctors and lots of other healthcare staff as well. And what I think that represents isn't, you know, does this union get a good deal? Does this union get a bad deal? Um, You know, what about nurses on this pay grade? What about the junior doctors? I think that reflects a much wider well, not even dissatisfaction, but breaking point amongst NHS staff who've seen their work be totally devalued over the last decade and a bit because of the you know, standstill on pay, the public sector pay freeze, which has meant that you know, their real terms pay has been falling, and also the expectation of doing more with less. There hasn't been enough investment in the NHS to retain staff. There hasn't been enough investment in the NHS in order to keep up with the demands of an aging population where overall health is worsening because of the impact of austerity. And so I think that these strikes, while of course they're about pay and they're about conditions, they're also about the fact that the NHS is crumbling and many workers, whether they're nurses, whether they're ambulance uh, workers, whether they're healthcare staff, whether they're doctors, see strike action as being undertaken to save the life of the NHS. It's not just about themselves. Ash, we've got a few comments here which are relevant. Um, I'm going to read those out and then come back to you with a question. In the YouTube chat, we've got Ghost Cat who says, I feel utterly ashamed of my union, presumably Unison, accepting this offer and handing the Tories a wedge and a hammer to beat the other unions with. I guess there's two ways of looking at this. On the one hand, it's very surprising that the RCN rank and file has defied even their own leadership, which is good. If you think that we need workers in solidarity defying the government to get a better deal for all of them. Um, On the other hand, Unison have accepted the offer. So I suppose you can look at this half empty, half full. Half full is that RCN rank and file are up for this. Half empty is that actually the government's already beginning to divide and conquer with regards to staff within the NHS. What's your take on that? Well, I I think that's true. There is a glass half empty thing. I mean, the thing that you have to bear in mind is that Unison has the much bigger membership. So when it comes to organising amongst the membership to either um, build a mandate for rejecting or or build a mandate for um, accepting a deal, there's always going to be a little bit more of an advantage for I would say the the path of least resistance. And that's just because you've got to organize a much higher number of people. And so I'd be really interested in learning about just what have the organizing techniques been within the RCN. 
because we know that there has been, you know, movements within the union in order to have the leadership take a much more um, robust position in pay negotiations and being more militant when it comes to calling strike action. And I'm starting to think, okay, well, this rejection of the pay offer, it reflects all of that political legwork that's been put in, but we don't necessarily see because it's almost like, you know, subterranean. That's not the news headline grabbing stuff. It's not the stuff which has an outward facing communications campaign. It's very much an internal thing. And I reckon that that's going to be where the real story is. Next story. This week, headlines have been dominated by the Pentagon leaks, a trove of over 100 Pentagon documents discovered on a Discord server early this month. With the leaks being described as the most damaging in the history of US intelligence, questions have swirled for days. Are the papers genuine? Was their appearance really a leak or a Russian hack? Or did the US government orchestrate the whole thing? The only thing we know for sure is that now an arrest has been made. This is the moment that Air National Guardsman Jack Tashira was arrested. The 21-year-old was surrounded by armed FBI agents on the driveway of his mother's home in North Dighton, Massachusetts. He was then taken into custody. Tashira stands accused of leaking batches of classified documents onto an online gaming group called Thug Shaker Central, and he'll now face federal charges. Unlike previous leaks, where a cache of electronic files appears somewhere like WikiLeaks, this one involved photographs of hard copies of what appear to be slides. This is one of the documents. It reveals the number of NATO troops in Ukraine on March 23rd this year, and we're going to come to that in a moment. But you can see in the top left corner what looks like a magazine in the background. So whoever the leaker was, they didn't seem overly concerned about covering their tracks. So what's in the papers? Well, the focus is Ukraine and the various geopolitical shenanigans largely conducted by the USA that have spilled out of that conflict. Pentagon officials are on the record confirming that at least some of them are real. And White House National Security Spokesman John Kirby let the press know how unhappy he was about their reporting of the leak. Without confirming the validity of the documents, this is information that has no business in the public domain. It has no business, if you don't mind me saying, uh, on the pages of, uh, of uh, front pages of, of newspapers or on television. It is not intended for public uh, consumption, uh, and it should not be out there. Others have seemed less bothered. Asked about the leaks in Ireland, the US President Joe Biden said this. Are you concerned about the leak? Well, I, I'm, I'm not concerned about the leakages, and I'm concerned that it happened. But there's nothing contemporaneous that I'm aware of that is of great consequence. Ash, before we get into the details, any general thoughts about what's happened here? Huge story. Yeah, it's a massive story. And I think this is going to be something we see a lot more of. I mean, one of the most surprising things about WikiLeaks is that rather than it kicking off um, a culture of real robust interrogation from our media classes, there's actually, I think, been a backwards pendulum swing of real deference to uh, the security services and what the military says is going on. I think that, you know, the, the demonization of the entire WikiLeaks project was remarkably successful as a kind of you know, counter operation to that kind of radical transparency. The circumstances which led to WikiLeaks, where I'm not just talking about um, the fact that Britain and American armed forces are involved in conflict overseas, but that also you've got members of military, members of the security services who are highly technologically literate, who are connected to either uh, to other ideologically similar and politically aligned individuals on the internet. And a culture on parts of the internet of real radical transparency. Sometimes it's politically motivated. Sometimes it's in service of the truth. Sometimes it can be even be a bit nihilistic. Um, I think you're going to see more kinds of leaks of this nature, where you've got you know vast numbers of young people, technologically literate, interested in making public things which have previously been secret, and you've also got a press culture, which is um, very, very different to what security services say can be 
put into the public sphere and what can't be put in the public sphere. So massive story, but I think reflective of quite a big technological and cultural change. Yeah, we'll be getting into the details in a moment. And there's a lot of dissonance with what we're hearing in official messaging. One of the most important revelations revealed in the papers is just how involved the US is in the day-to-day progress of the war in Ukraine. The papers confirm that Washington is providing a huge amount of intelligence to the Ukrainian military, much of it derived from sources inside Russia. According to the New York Times, the US is providing detailed targeting data. It is coordinating the long, complex logistical train that delivers weapons to the Ukrainians. And as a February 22nd document makes clear, American officials are planning ahead for a year in which the battle for the Donbass is, quote, likely heading toward a stalemate that will frustrate Vladimir V. Putin's goal of capturing the region and Ukraine's goal of expelling the invaders. One senior Western intelligence official summed up the disclosures as, quote, a nightmare. Dmitry Alperovich, the Russian-born chairman of Silverado Policy Accelerator, who is best known for pioneering work in cybersecurity, said on Sunday that he feared there was, quote, a number of ways this can be damaging. He said that included the possibility Russian intelligence is able to use the pages spread out over Twitter and Telegram to, quote, figure out how we are collecting the plans of the GRU, Russia's military intelligence service, and the movement of military units. But the support of the US and its allies doesn't appear to be just from a distance. Zooming in, the document we showed you earlier seems to confirm there are 97 NATO Special Forces personnel currently in Ukraine. 14 are from the US, but 50 are from Great Britain. Then there are 15 from France, 17 from Latvia, and one from the Netherlands. Now, that's significant. The presence of NATO troops in a war zone has the potential to put us in a direct conflict with Russia. But it also reveals that the White House wasn't completely frank when former spokesperson Jen Psaki said this last year. I would note the president's view and his position continues to be that we are not putting U.S. troops on the ground to fight this war, and that's something we will continue to reiterate for Americans. Our own government here in Britain has never confirmed the presence of British forces in Ukraine. In response to the leak, the UK's Ministry of Defence posted this on social media. The widely reported leak of alleged classified US information has demonstrated a serious level of inaccuracy. Readers should be cautious about taking at face value allegations that have the potential to spread disinformation. Also in the documents is an assessment of Ukraine's air defences. This document reveals that Pentagon officials believe Ukraine's air defences will be, quote, completely depleted by the end of May. If that's true, Russia may then deploy its fighter jets and bombers to try and change the course of the war on the ground. But things are also not looking good for Russia. A more recent leak seems to show infighting between Russia's intelligence agency, that's the FSB, and its Ministry of Defense. The last official ministry briefing on Russia's military death toll in Ukraine was in September. Then, Defense Minister Sergei Shoigu said that nearly 6,000 Russian troops had been killed since the war started. But based on the leak, the New York Times reports this. In one document, American intelligence officials say that Russia's main domestic intelligence agency, the Federal Security Service, or FSB, has accused the country's defense ministry of obfuscating Russian casualties in Ukraine. The finding highlights the continued reluctance of military officials to convey bad news up the chain of command, they say. FSB officials, the document says, contend the ministry's toll did not include the dead and wounded among the Russian National Guard, the Wagner mercenary force, or fighters fielded by Ramsan Kadyrov, broadly irregulars within the Russian invasion, the strongman leader of the southern Russian Republic of Chechnya. The sun-dry fighting forces that the Kremlin has deployed in Ukraine have sometimes acted at cross-purposes, further complicating Russia's military effort. The FSB, quote, calculated the actual number of Russians wounded and killed in action was closer to 110,000, the document says. If these leaks are real, one thing it shows is how deeply embedded the US intelligence service is in the Russian Central Command. This kind of information, if true, requires sources pretty close to the heart of Russia's government. And of course, the risk to the Americans is that the leak will help the Russians figure out where their assets are. Ash, were you surprised at the news that there are 50 members of the British Armed Forces presently operating in Ukraine? I wasn't surprised by the news that we've got 
50 members of the British Armed Forces in Ukraine. But I am horrified that we've learned about this through leaks rather than proper channels, uh, which can also be you know, vetted and <clears throat> fact-checked by our national media, which is meant to have the capacity and also the job of telling us things that we really need to know. Because here we are in a position where you know, us as citizens are having to look at the contents of these leaks, make an assessment based on very little about whether we trust them or not, uh, about how accurate the information is or not. And once more, this is, I think, because of a wider problem of complacency and incuriosity um, in our own establishment media. And I'll give you an example of this. Um, whenever you as somebody who is on the left says, hang on, you know, there's there's some things filtering into our newspapers or our broadcast, which is very obviously pro-Ukrainian propaganda. Um, is this the role we want our national media to be taking? The universal response you get from pundit land, and I'm not just talking about you know, people with FBPE in their Twitter handles and talking about very, very senior journalists is, well, you're only saying this because you must be pro-Putin. This is the Kremlin's line. You're doing Putin's work for him. To the extent that when I was on Politics Live not that long ago, the very first question that was asked to me by the BBC presenter was, which side are you on? Now, that's something which I think is a really unhealthy media culture, which is when you do the job of a journalist, which is to ask probing questions, which is to ask critical questions, which is to say, all right, we need to interrogate whether this is a reliable source of information or not, regardless of our personal political sympathies, you're then denigrated and smeared as a Putin sympathizer. This is something which has allowed really egregious bits of propaganda, like the wholly fictitious ghost of Kiev fighter pilot. But also it means that we've been taking numbers of Russian losses, which can vary really wildly. Um, it also means that there is this enormous amount of complacency when it comes to where British troops are and what they're doing. Now, that is something which directly impacts British citizens, the possibility of a direct military conflict between our armed forces and Russia's armed forces. That's something which we should know about. We should be able to consent as a democracy to that use of military force or not. But because British media culture basically thinks that it's not just appropriate, but it's you know, aspirational for them to operate as an extension of the Ukrainian war effort, we don't get these questions being asked, much less answered. And then we're left with these sources of information, which aren't reliable, which aren't fact-checked, um, which might be true, which also might not be true. And as citizens, we're kind of left on our own to deal with it. I think that's a real critical failure of media in this country. Ash, I asked in, in regards to those 50 British personnel, uh, is it a surprise? I mean, are you worried? Because this is something that I've been talking about, Michael has as well, of course you as well, uh, since the start of this thing, which is it's hugely important that the British public are properly informed about the war in Ukraine, the facts. And people say, well, if you say the facts, then you know that, that might help the Russian war effort. You can't give them propaganda wins. But I think when you've got British nationals being deployed there, and we're meant to be a democracy, I don't think you can do that and at the same time intentionally mislead the public. Because what you can see here, I think, is a potential path. I don't think it's likely, and I'm sure people are going to agree or disagree with regards to whether or not those 50 people should be there. But I, I think what's indisputable is you can see a potential path to another forever war, another potential conflict, 10, 15, 20 years, just like Afghanistan. And we have people there and people die and we spend money with no real objectives. We don't know what the conditions are for when we leave. And there's no public debate around it. And I think that's really, really concerning. And, 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 I'm not, and that hasn't happened. I'm not saying it's inevitable, but it's quite possible. And, and to do that at the same time that the public is being actively misled about the, the facts on the ground. And hey, people say this because they say, well, like I said at the start, we can't give you the facts because that might be a, a public relations coup for the Kremlin at times. 
I think that's a really bad way for democracy to operate when it comes to foreign policy. What's your read on this? I'm in total agreement when it comes to the possibility of either escalation or really prolonged conflict, which first and foremost will come at the expense of human life, Ukrainian civ civilians, Ukrainian fighters, uh, Russian conscripts as well, but also will have an impact on our economy our treasury's budget, what money yeah. we have to spend, so on and so forth. I think these are basic questions to ask. I think it's really important that as a citizenry, we're informed and we're engaged. But you've got this kind of united front, a closing of ranks between our media classes and our political classes. So then you, your next question really has to be, do you trust the people in charge of this country to make good decisions? Now, for me, that answer was an absolute resounding no. And it was something which I really thought to myself on Zelensky's last visit to the UK. Now, when Zelensky was here, the thing that he really wanted were fighter jets being supplied by the UK. Um, that was what, what he was out for. Now, that would have put the UK uh, at real odds with the consensus of France, Germany, and the US. But what Zelensky did, and this was very smart of him to do, was appeal to the vanity of Westminster-based politicians. So he presents Lindsay Hoyle, the Speaker of the House, with a signed fighter pilot helmet. You know, we have the freedom, now give us the wings to protect it. There are all of these photo opportunities of Zelensky alongside Rishi Sunak, who's dressed up like a fighter pilot himself. And then the conversation that week becomes dominated by, well, when are Ukraine going to get the fighter jets? And nobody wants to say why they're not getting the fighter jets, a combination of it being logistically very difficult and also the risk of escalation if those fighter jets are used in Russian airspace. So you then you've got this bizarre pageantry where politicians are falling over themselves to get that photo opportunity with Zelensky. And you've got a total silencing of any kind of interrogation whatsoever. And that was the thing that really troubled me that if it's so easy to appeal to the vanity of UK political leadership to an extent that they're starting to, you know, m make these kinds of, you know, quite flimsy promises on fighter jets in a way which really does put the UK as an outlier to Berlin and to Washington, then these aren't people who are thoughtful. These aren't people who are capable of thinking beyond the next set of poll numbers. People might be watching this and thinking, come on, lighten up, relax. But the reality is, Britain sleepwalked into a 20-year war in Afghanistan, and we left, and the Taliban was still in charge. And it cost the taxpayer billions of pounds. Several hundred people died from this country. And it was an utter failure and a catastrophe. So the idea that in the immediate context of that, I mean, that literally happened, the departure from Afghanistan was literally a couple of years ago. The idea that in the immediate shadow of that, you wouldn't take the prospect of this becoming something similar, I, I think is unwise. And important to say, actually with regards to World War I and World War II, Britain sleepwalked into both of those conflicts too. In spring of 1939, absolutely nobody was prepared for an intercontinental war. Absolutely nobody. And the same applied in 1914. Now, I'm not saying that this will catalyze a world war. Of course, that's highly unlikely. But the idea that you don't take a wider conflict, bringing in the, the great powers, because it hasn't happened for 80 years, I mean, I, I think that's very unwise. And I think, it's, I think it's playing with a very dangerous set of circumstances. So yes, of course, we should be informed about what's going on with regards to UK nationals in Ukraine. And that's not just in the public interest. I think that's actually, from recent experience, in the interest of UK armed forces too, because we are a democracy and the allocation of, of forces overseas should be in the public view. Not every last minute detail, like locations and air bases, but I think whether or not they're there is beyond any shadow of a doubt. 
And moving to wider geopolitical events, the leaks also show just how hard the US is pushing other countries to supply military aid to Ukraine, but also how unexpected alliances are arising in response to the conflict. One document appears to show that the US intercepted the internal communications of its close ally, South Korea. The Washington Times reports this. Seoul has reportedly insisted that the US be the, quote, end user of military aid, as the country so far has resisted sending lethal assistance directly to Ukraine for its war with Russia. The leaked documents include apparent conversations between Mr. Yoon's Secretary for Foreign Affairs, Yi Min-hu, and the South Korean National Security Advisor, Kim Sung-han, about the issue. The government, Mr. Yi said, was, quote, mired in concerns that the U.S. would not be the end user if South Korea were to comply with the U.S. request for ammunition, according to one document. Those alleged comments suggest that Seoul feared the U.S. would send the South Korean artillery to Ukraine, circumventing South Korea's policy against providing military equipment directly to countries engaged in active conflict. Now, it's not a huge surprise to learn that the U.S. spies on its allies, but it's embarrassing. Still, South Korea's National Security Office issued this denial. Many of the disclosed documents are fabricated, and our joint assessments are consistent with each other. Another document concerns Serbia, widely considered a close ally of Russia. These are scenes of Serbians celebrating the invasion of Ukraine in Belgrade last year. It's also the only country in Europe that's refused to impose sanctions on Russia. But according to a leaked Pentagon paper, things are not quite as they seem. The Times reports this. Showing a chart entitled Europe Response to Ongoing Russo-Ukraine Conflict, the document revealed that Serbia had declined to provide military training to Ukrainian forces, but had committed to supply weapons or had sent them already. The chart sets out the assessed positions of 38 European countries in response to Ukraine's request for military aid to counter the Russian invasion. The chart, dated March 2nd and labelled Norofin, prohibiting its distribution to foreign militaries and intelligence agencies, also said that Serbia has the capability and political will to provide more weapons to Ukraine in the future. The Serbian government denies the information in the leak. Perhaps the most explosive details in the leaks appear to show a seismic shift in the US's relations with the Arab world, however. First, close ally of the US, Egypt appears to have secretly agreed to supply arms to Russia. And according to the document, Egypt's President Sisi was planning to send 40,000 rockets, artillery rounds, and gunpowder to Russia. According to the Times, on February 1st, Sisi allegedly told a subordinate, almost certainly Mohammed Salah al-Din, Minister for Arms Production, to conduct the manufacture and sale of the missiles secretly to, quote, avoid problems with the West. The subordinate replied that he would order workers to put in extra shifts to fulfill the order, quote, because it was the least Egypt could do to repay Russia for unspecified help earlier. Another apparent US ally, the UAE, United Arab Emirates, also appears to have promised Russia help to fight, quote, against US and UK intelligence. The, UA the UAE has categorically denied the claim. It feels like the coalition behind the US is much more fragile and much weaker than we're often led to believe by Western media. I think in particular, the idea that the UAE and Egypt would be supporting Russia indicates to me there's a real weakening of U.S. influence in the Middle East. We had, of course, those negotiations recently between Saudi Arabia and Iran conducted by China. Now this. Are we seeing the end of sort of U.S. hegemony in Western Asia, in places which really the entirety of our lifetimes and all the way through to the end of the Second World War has been their backyard? Yes. And I think that's something which has been on the cards for quite a long time. So following from 2014, you have seen a real, quite significant reorientation of Western diplomatic efforts and also military spending away from the Middle East and towards Eastern Europe. And that's, of course, following on from Russia's invasion of Crimea. And many people think that one of the reasons behind our hasty and disastrous withdrawal from Afghanistan, which led to Taliban seizing territory, which they didn't even have pre-9-11, and those awful chaotic scenes in Kabul of people trying to 
get out before uh you know the the exit door was closed forever. Um, is that part of the reason for that really hasty uh, withdrawal? Was because Biden wanted to direct, you know, all of his attention towards Ukraine and towards Russia. So this has been something that's really on the cards. And in the space which has been left by the U.S. Um, diplomatically, uh, but also in terms of uh, some of this, uh, you know direct funding uh, and engagement, well, there's been nothing. There's been nothing. So it has been a real opportunity for China and also for Russia. Um, I also think that there's been a real um, overestimation amongst uh, you know, British and American elites in terms of the appetite of the rest of the world to damage their own economies by participating wholesale in Russian sanctions. Now, we've seen what's happened here in terms of spike in energy prices. There are lots of other countries which simply didn't want to say no to Russian gas, to say no to Russian oil. Um, You've got multiple countries in Latin America, Africa, which are saying, look, why are we going to push our food prices up? Why are we going to plunge you know, our citizens into poverty in order to participate in what's effectively a European war effort? Now, that can be something which you agree with. That can be something that you disagree with. But those are countries who are looking out for their own national interest in this. And there hasn't really been a sense um, from either the US or the UK of, okay, well, well how are you going to... Um, provide some kind of incentive for for people to get involved in a way which could be really damaging to their own interests. I think there's been an awful lot of hubris um, when it comes to uh, the West's approach to um, the involvement of countries in the Middle East and the global South um, and simply yelling about the morally correct position of supporting Ukraine in English language media isn't going to cut it. I think there's an easy binary here, which is uh, Ukraine, good, supported at all costs, and believe everything that the Western media says. And of course, everything that Ukraine touches turns to gold, Russia's falling apart, there'll be an invasion of Russia by Ukraine, etc, etc, etc. And that's clearly nonsense. And actually, one comment responds to that. And I think actually, that gives rise to conspiracism and distrust in the media. I'll mention that in a moment. Um, there's obviously another story, which is actually Russia's winning. Um, we're being lied to left, right, and center. Uh, and the, the sort of furthest excesses of that present Russia as somehow, you know, this, this, uh, this great power for freedom and anti-American sort of liberty and sovereignty and so on. That's the kind of thing that Sergei Lavrov, their foreign minister, would say. And of course, that the truth is not somewhere in the middle, but is much more nuanced than that, which is to say, even though our own government and the US and English-speaking media, as you say, Ash, like to present this as a united front, the whole, quote-unquote, global communities against Russia, that is not true. The majority of the world, in terms of the global south, large countries like China, India, Brazil, are still retaining quite extensive diplomatic relations with Russia. And I think, and I think we think at Navarra, it's hugely important for the public in this country to be informed about that and to know that and not to be misled um, and misguided in terms of the reality of the story. Because fundamentally, knowing the facts about this are going to underpin your views if this escalates. If you think that actually Russia's going to roll over and that everybody supports us and it's going to be, you know, triumphalist Western backing of Ukraine, then of course you're going to be more likely to back um, an intensification of the war effort. You're going to be more likely to back... Uh, potential use of UK armed forces and so on. Now, I'm, again, I'm not saying that's right or wrong, but clearly we should be basing policy on facts, reality, and, and, and plausible outcomes rather than fantasy. Uh, and I think what you said there, Ash, about English-speaking media not reporting the facts is hugely important. If we're going to have a proper grown-up debate about foreign policy in this country, we need to know the facts, and we're not being told those by much of the media. Next story. Joe Biden is the president of the United States, which in the eyes of many makes him the most powerful person on the planet. And this week, he enjoyed a four-day state visit to Ireland. 
that kicked off in Belfast, with the president meeting Prime Minister Rishi Sunak on the airport tarmac, before seeming to push him out of the way to salute a rather regal-looking military man. Some people commented on Twitter saying that Biden didn't recognize Sunak, which is funny, but the real explanation for that appears to be that it's international protocol. On arrival, a visiting head of state is welcomed by, in this case, the Lord Lieutenant for County Antrim, and they're representing the sovereign, King Charles III. Later on, Biden met with Sunak in a Belfast hotel. Here's a photo of the two men. Great tweet here. The human embodiment of a team's call when you logged in too early and have absolutely nothing to say to each other while you painfully wait for everyone else to join. Personally speaking, this image resembled conversations with my dad once football and Iranian foreign policy have dried up. Just kidding, dad. Full disclosure, here's another picture of the meeting of the two men shared by the official White House Twitter account. Looks rather different. And then came the moment that Biden did actually make a proper gaffe, and this is a serious one. You see this tie I have with the shamrock on it? This was given to me by one of these guys right here. <clears throat> was a hell of a rugby player. And they beat the hell of the black and tans. Oh, God. <laughs> but, but it was when you were at a, a soldier field, wasn't it? The game? Chicago. Chicago. That is Joe Biden referring to the All Blacks, the New Zealand national rugby team, as, quote, the black and tans. Men who served as Unionist paramilitaries during the Irish War of Independence and hold a central place in the law of Irish republicanism. He was thanking Rob Kearney, a distant cousin who played for the Irish national team when they beat New Zealand in 2016. He remembered the location in Chicago, but he didn't remember the All Blacks. So maybe this wasn't a gaffe. Maybe it was on purpose. Who knows with Biden? The official transcript of the remarks released by the White House on Thursday crossed out black and tans and inserted the All Blacks instead. But by then it was too late. And the reception to that gaffe was rather mixed, it should be said. The New York Post went with this. Biden makes cringeworthy gaffe in Ireland, mixes up all blacks rugby squad with black and tan military force. While the Irish mirror saw the lighter side, US President Joe Biden leaves people in stitches with black and tan gaffe. I don't know if his staff were in stitches. The knockout punch, however, was this. Here's President Biden posing for a picture with Jerry Adams, one-time leader of Sinn Féin, the political wing of the IRA during the Troubles. And it was that picture with Jerry Adams that made some people really flip out. Foremost among them was GB News's Darren Grimes. If you can smile and pose with this man, I couldn't give a flying flamingo what you demand of Northern Ireland. Darren, I have bad news for you. Here's a picture of your king. Mr. Grimes, show some damn respect to your sovereign. <laughs> Ash, it's been quite the whirlwind for President Biden in Ireland, hasn't it? Both North and South. It really is. And you can tell which bit of the trip Joe Biden enjoyed more. It was when he got south of the border and he was really able to embody every single American who's got some distant Irish ancestry, right? Because there's no one more enthusiastic than an American on holiday in Europe who's got an Irish grandparent. Um, so I'm very, very happy that he was able to live up to that particular national tradition. Um, the thing that was really striking for me watching this visit take place is that unlike when a US president comes to London and they've got that photo opportunity outside number 10, and, you know, they've got the joint lecterns, maybe there's a visit to a royal palace as well. This visit to Northern Ireland and Ireland really signposted, I think, some of the failures of British diplomacy in recent years, and also, I think, challenged many Westminster-based commentators' own sense of superiority. So it all became about the Biden gaffes, and oh my God, how could he have a selfie with Jerry Adams? Oh, it's so silly how he thinks he's so Irish, and you know, oh, did you know that his mother was this, you know, anti-Britain ideologue? Because I think that it threw our own shortcomings into really stark relief, in particular the way in which Irish politics has been treated as totally subordinate to our own Brexit psychodrama. And also I think it's unposed some of the successes of 
the Republic of Ireland's uh, diplomacy and foreign policy, particularly when it comes to the United States in recent years, whereas we've had our own governments, you know, calling Joe Biden woke, holding hands with Donald Trump, and also in the view of the Democrats, certainly really weakening what they consider to be a massive bulwark of Western interests, which is the European Union by leaving it. So I think that this visit to Ireland by Joe Biden really challenged, I think, internalized superiority of many Brits and watching that meltdown take place on Twitter, Aaron, chef's kiss. Yeah. On an important note, I think this was something of a humiliation for Sunak and for the British state, um, particularly seeing as Biden won't be attending the coronation of Charles III. And by contrast, he's spending four days in Ireland and um, really going to town with his, with his Irish identity. Uh, I think in a really difficult moment for the UK, and it's not quite clear where it sits in the the global community and what relationships it has with both the United States and with Europe. Bit of a stake to the heart. Final story. A few months ago, Labour took aim at government largesse by publishing a dossier of, quote, five-star spending by ministers and civil servants. The dossier even had its own website. Those documents revealed how Rishi Sunak stayed in the five-star hotel Daniele in Venice when attending a G20 meeting in 2021. Between him and 11 aides, the bill for that came to £4,500. Also identified was how, at COP26 in Glasgow that same year, the Treasury hired a £3,600 chauffeur service for ministers and visiting officials. The same chauffeur service was hired by Nadim Zahawi's department for £1,000 during his own trip to COP26. Liz Truss, along with her entourage, spent £1,400 on lunch and dinner at two restaurants in Jakarta in November that same year, and the Foreign Office spent thousands on a reception for the then Foreign Secretary overlooking Sydney Harbour. At the time, Labour Deputy Leader Angela Rayner said the Tories were treating taxpayers like a cash machine, and Labour's official line was that the Tories were acting as if it were, quote, the last days of Rome. And just last month, Keir Starmer said, quote, with my Labour government, every pound will be precious. Powerful stuff. But it turns out that Keir Starmer might not be the best messenger for all of this, because during his time as Director of Public Prosecutions from 2008 until 2013, Keir Starmer benefited from similarly generous expenses, expenses he now presumably thinks were wasteful and unacceptable. The website Declassified UK reports this. Starmer's total travel bill for the time in charge of the DPP, that should say CPS, he was the DPP, that's the Crown Prosecution Service, stood at £236,485, which funded first or business class flights to four continents, including a £6,808 flight to Washington, D.C., and a £4,914 flight to Hong Kong. In his first 21 months in the job, he also billed £161,000 for the use of a chauffeur-driven car. At the time, Starmer lived in Kentish Town, four miles from the CPS office in central London. Starmer's on-demand car cost the taxpayer an average £1,920 a week for nearly two years. While he had access to the car, he billed the taxpayer a further £330 for 13 taxi rides across London. Now, you might be thinking, that's a lot of money, but the private car is necessary, Aaron. But wait, there's more. Because Declassified go on to say, quote, that Starmer stopped using the car in June 2010, soon after an embarrassing story broke in the media. So we did some digging here at Navarro Live, and here's the story. Chief prosecutor claims £250 a day for a chauffeur-driven car. The country's chief prosecutor is claiming more than £250 a day in expenses for a chauffeur-driven car. It has been disclosed. That was on the Telegraph, as you can see, in February 2010. So Starmer needed a chauffeur so much that when the media found out what was happening, he stopped using it and proceeded to suddenly not need one for the remaining three years he served as the DPP. And on this point, Declassified adds even more remarkable detail. Starmer's successor as DPP was Alison Saunders, who served the same five-year term from 2013 to 2018. Her travel expenses bill from her tenure was £67,340, less than a third of Starmer's. So Keir Starmer happily used expenses as much as any Tory minister who he now attacks and stopped when he was caught. 
Then his successor spent significantly less, but this guy wants to be prime minister because he'll get value for money. He doesn't exactly have a strong record on that issue, does he? Ash, this story has really landed. It's in the Times, the Telegraph, the Mail, everywhere else. And I guess the central reason for that is that Keir Starmer chose to make expenses an issue, and now he's got egg in his face. Well, that's the thing about Keir Starmer, which is he has made the decision as Labour Party leader to primarily attack the Conservatives on matters of probity, integrity and personal Mm. conduct. So when it comes to matters of policy, there's not a huge amount of difference between them. But when it's come to things like the handling of uh, the Chris Pincher complaints or Partygate or use of taxpayer-funded expenses, that's been where Keir Starmer has chosen to put distance between himself and the Conservative Party. Now, that's not necessarily a bad thing, unless you have something of a bit of a past when it comes to making, you know, quite outlandish expenses claims. And I think the fact that Keir Starmer's successor spent only a third of what he did on travel shows you that He could have been, you know, more respectful, more discerning, a bit more restrained when it came to use of taxpayer money. I think this is something which goes to the heart of Keir Starmer's character as a man, because really there are two Starmers. There's the Starmer who really likes to emphasize his humble salt of the earth roots. So my father was a tool maker. I bought this plot of land so that my mother could look at the donkeys. And I'm not saying those things are untrue. Of course, they're factually true and they must be a really important part of how he derives his identity. But there is another part of his identity, which is really motivated by status. It's really motivated by the pursuit of status and those signs of being someone who's considered really important. You can see that by the fact anyone who accepts a knighthood because they want people to call him sir, that's somebody who's interested in quite shallow, I think, signifiers of status. Someone who wants to be driven around in a chauffeur-driven car when your job is in central London, you live basically in central London and getting the tube and the occasional cab won't kill you. That's somebody who is motivated by status, by feeling important. And that's the kind of person, I think, who won't always make good judgments when it comes to what's a good use of public money and what isn't. And also keeping their nose clean in all those matters of personal conduct that he's chosen to attack the Tories on. I think this is so important because people might be watching this and saying, don't attack Labour, or this is normal for the DPP, the Director of Public Prosecutions, even though we just showed you that his successor spent a third as much. But Keir Starmer chose to go on value for money in in the public sector. He chose to do this against the Tories. Labour in February literally built a website calling out Tory largesse and saying they spent too much money. And this is the same man who in his first 21 months in the job as DPP built £161,000 for a chauffeur. £161,000 in 21 months. Now, if you had that in your past, if that was what you were doing 10 years ago, would you then go and attack your opponents on value for money? It seems both politically unwise, but also like you say, Ash, it goes to the core of who, who is this guy? Does he think he can attack other people, but somehow those attacks won't be reciprocated? Why? Is he special? Maybe he thinks he's got some special qualities, which mean he's beyond reproach. And he is very thin-skinned when he comes under attacks. And I, I wonder what explains that. Um, that is a question for another time. I very much doubt that Keir Starmer will be coming on Navarro Media. Though, if we do become that number one podcast on Spotify, perhaps he might just start to pay a little bit more attention. Thanks, Ash, for joining me tonight. Thank you so much for having me. And one thing I'll say is that if Keir Starmer ever does come on Navarro Media, I guarantee that it won't be at an event that's sponsored by Amazon, Coca-Cola and BAE Systems, unlike some other media outlets I could name. Very well put. And thanks everyone for watching this evening. Come back to this channel on Monday for another live stream from 6pm. For now, you've been watching Navara Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com support.